Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Walter Johnson's new book reframes American history so that St. Louis sits at the center. It's an illuminating change. No more looking at the nation as if it's that New Yorker cartoon where everything important happened in New York or L.A. and the vast middle was mere flyover country. In Walter Johnson's telling, the St. Louis story is the American story. That story is messy and it's really ugly. In Johnson's telling, it's a story of white supremacy, of European Americans building an empire on the backs of everyone else, and the violent conflicts that result when the people they marginalize fight back. The book is called The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis and the Violent History of the United States. And here today to discuss it is Walter Johnson. Walter, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Now, you grew up in Columbia, Missouri, uh, but you haven't lived here for years. What made you decide to put St. Louis under your lens? Um, well, it, it really had to do with the fall of uh, 2014 and a sort of, a, I guess, a almost accidental set of events. I had been invited to WashU to give a keynote address for our graduate student conference. And I was probably, the invitation probably came at the end of 2013. Mm. But it was for October of 2014. It was for the, the weekend that turned out to be Ferguson October. And so um, I really felt like given the, given the fact that I am a Missourian, mm-hmm. and given the fact of the the sorts of things I'm interested in and the the way that I think, I really felt called to to try to um, come and and talk about about some of what was going on in historical perspective. And that took a you know it, it, it was a quick learning curve for me. I had to to set aside things that I um, had some experience in studying and and learn about a new set of things. Um, I started off that fall with a, a piece about the political economy of Ferguson and the political economy of tax abatement in, in the county and in the city, mm-hmm. um, and particularly the question of, of Emerson Electric, um, you know, a Fortune 500 company in the city limits of, of Ferguson. And, and a simple question, kind of a naive question, which is how could it be that the, the city of Ferguson was farming poor black motorists for traffic tickets when there was a $26 billion a year corporation in the city limits. And so from there, I, I, I just sort of went backwards. I'm a 19th century historian, so I guess I went backwards to begin going forwards again. And in your book, you get at not just systemic racism, but structural racism. Right. Um, for those who aren't um, experts in this, help us understand what that difference is. Yeah, well, what I'm what I'm trying to do in the book is to write a long history of what I would call structural racism, and I think a lot of people use the term structural racism to mean really, really bad racism or really recalcitrant racism. And I'm trying to use it somewhat differently. I'm trying to talk about forms of exploitation. Um, domination and racial hierarchy that are actually built into the fabric of our lives, um, like the interstate highway system, for mm-hmm. instance, or the the divide between the city and county, or the the multiplicity of the municipalities. And the idea is to illuminate historically the way that these things came to be, and so to to help help us see. I was initially trying to help myself see. Mm-hmm. Um, how it is that attitudinal racism, um, believing that some groups of people are inferior to others, is structured into the landscape in a way that it produces a kind of an alibi. 
right, that it, at, at some point it becomes possible for racial hierarchy to go forward without anybody actually expressing any racist ideas because it's so structured into our daily lives. Hmm. It's such an ugly story in so many ways. And your book, I, I really enjoyed it. I learned so much. Um, it also infuriated me at, at so many points. And, <laughs> and at other points, I just felt so deeply depressed. Do you think any city would fare this badly under your microscope? Or do you think the St. Louis story really is uniquely and particularly dark? Um, you know, I, I, I guess I, I almost feel called to start the answer to that question by saying I, I love St. Louis. And I feel like the book is also um, full of heroes. And so, I, you mm-hmm. know, I, I do want to emphasize that. My, my view of St. Louis is that it is not unique at all in the United States, but that it may be exemplary. Hmm. And so what I mean by that is that I think the things that I have, I, I, really, I really do believe, and I really have tried to capture the way that I believe that the history of the United States was, was made, was, was articulated, was best expressed and first expressed in St. Louis. Um, but it's still the history of the United States. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think that that um, the history of um, Indian killing and Indian removal or of um, the, the sort of sorts of anti-blackness that I describe or of urban renewal um, are unique to St. Louis. I do think that they were, um, in many cases, extremely expressed. In St. Louis. So, so I think the way that I generally answer that question is not by saying St. Louis is unique, but by saying it is, it is extreme. Hmm. I was struck um, by your exploration of slavery in St. Louis. You wrote that it was, quote, uniquely violent because it was uniquely precarious. Um, yeah. What do you mean by that? What made slavery so precarious here? Well, I, I have, you know, the, so, so the, most of my career has been devoted to the to the study of slavery, and most of the work that I've done on slavery has been in the Deep South. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that has struck me about slavery in the Deep South is that it is an economic institution and a racial institution and a social institution, but it's also a spatial institution. Mm-hmm. One of the things that is very, very terrifying about slavery in Mississippi or Louisiana to enslaved people is that it's very difficult to escape. It's just a, a long way from any sort of safety. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the case in St. Louis, right? In St. Louis, it was it was not not <laughs> it was very comparatively easy to escape. Illinois was was, was right was across easy, the river, <laughs> right? And what that means then is that the boundary between um, slavery and freedom is maintained by a more overt. Um, sorts of daily violence. Some of the violence of slavery, and, and you know, I've written, uh, whatever, another 500-page book about the intense violence of slavery in the Deep South, so I don't hmm. want to be misunderstood. But, but some of that is, is um, expressed spatially through the landscape itself, and that's just not the case in St. Louis. Hmm. The other thing is that there's a very, very um, unclear understanding in St. Louis as there is um, in a lot of the urban South. It's just not clear who's free and who's enslaved at any given moment. There are a um, considerable number of free people of color in St. Louis in the 19th century. There are even um, more free people of color who work on riverboats going up and down uh, the Mississippi to New Orleans, but also up the Missouri. 
um, into, you know, into to, um, Indian country. And so there's, there's just a lot of uncertainty. And I think uncertainty in um, hierarchical and unstable political situations is often resolved through violence. Yeah, and it was fascinating reading about how that confusion uh, between who's slave and who's free led to so many terrible policies and so many bad court decisions. That it, was, it was just fascinating to look at it through that lens. One of the other things that was so surprising and, and striking to me in this book, I think in St. Louis we grapple a lot with the history of slavery, knowing that the slave auction house was here in the Dred Scott case. I don't know that we talk much about the city's role in clearing Native Americans out of the West. And this was a guy who's regarded as a local hero, William Clark, whose role you really explore um, in here. Yeah, I I do think that, and I I think the thing that struck me the most as I wrote the book was the connection between the history of empire and the history of anti-blackness. And that begins with St. Louis's role as an imperial city. And um, I, I, starting out, had no idea of the military importance of St. Louis in the 19th century, but Jefferson Barracks was the headquarters of the Western Department of the Army for most of the the 19th century. And most of the Indian wars before the Civil War um, were staged out of Jefferson Barracks. And for a time um, after the Civil War, William Tecumseh Sherman moved the entire headquarters of the U.S. Army (laughs) to to Jefferson Barracks. And and so um, that history of um, Indian removal, which does begin with Clark, who was, uh, well, I mean, it it antedates Clark, but Clark was the um, chief Indian agent of the United States of America for a period um, for the 1810s, 20s, and and into the 30s, and oversaw the removal of at least 80, maybe 100,000 people from the states east of Missouri. Hmm. And then the Indian removal... Um, you know, only only increased after that, and and it became um, increasingly characterized by by open war from through the 1830s, really through the 1880s, and um, much many of those wars were were staged out of, as I said, out of Jefferson Barracks, and many of the people who became the the heroes of the Civil War were were Indian fighters before they were Civil War generals. We're talking to historian and author Walter Johnson about his new book, The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis and the Violent History of the United States. One of the other things in this book that was just eye-opening to me was learning about the World's Fair uh, from the perspective that you brought to it. Uh, In the city of St. Louis, we may think of this as our moment in the sun. You see a lot of ugliness there and and did a good job of explaining it. Um, You call it a sanitized and idealized projection of the self-regarding fantasy life of the city's ruling class. Uh, tell us what you mean by that. Well, I, I see the, the World's Fair was in many ways the um, epitome, the, the apogee of the expression of the United States empire of the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. And I think that by that time, the way that um, national and um, regional leaders are thinking about empires is a kind of a tutelage, is, as a sort of a, a school for the um, less able people of the world. Hmm. And the idea is to help um, everyone find their appropriate place in the greater scheme of um, 
Anglo-Saxon dominance. And so the World's Fair is staged as a kind of a series of lessons about the, um, the limited improvability of the peoples of the world if properly exposed to the um, generous tutelage of, of Anglo-Saxons. And I think for the leaders of the city, um, you know, who, who the, the, the patrons of the fair, David Francis um, most emblematically, it serves as an opportunity for them to try to educate um, working class and even poor white people about um, to, 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 to make a pitch to them. Hmm. And that pitch is, why don't you join us in, um, at, the, at the top of the pyramid? Why don't you come and play your part too? And we can, we can help lift you above everyone in the world if you, if you stop going on strike, you know, if, hmm. if you stop creating all of this, this difficulty, if you stop thinking about the central antagonism in the society as being between capital and labor, and instead you think about the way that all of us here in, you know, Forest Park or St. Louis or the United States of America are at the top of the pyramid of civilization. Now, you mentioned these workers going on strike. And really, if there's light in all of this darkness that you're exposing in this book, you find it in some wonderful people who really pushed back. There's such a long history of dissent here. Um, You write that the sit-in movement actually began in St. Louis all the way back in 1941. How were we so far ahead of... What was happening in the 50s and 60s elsewhere? I, I think that, that one of the things that struck me as I wrote the book um, was the long and enduring history of um, labor and black radicalism in the city of St. Louis, dating back to the, the general strike in, in 1877. Um, I think that the sit-in movement is, you know, even after, after what I've done, um, and and certainly what what Kiona Irvin has done in her wonderful book, um, there's still room for for more work on the sit-in movement, and I think that it is um, one of the the things about um, black activism in St. Louis is that from a very early moment it was economically focused. Hmm. It was economically focused partly because uh, African Americans could vote in St. Louis already, and so there was not the huge struggle around voting rights that there was um, that there was in many other places in the nation. But it was also economically um, focused because there was a very um, large and enduring legacy left over from the economic actions taken by black women and communists in the 1930s. And so there were terrifically interesting alliances between black working people and the Communist Party in St. Louis in the, in the 1930s. And I think that that, that focus on um, economics, on, on employment, on fairness um, in... in access to different sorts of consumer goods, all of those things are very, very strong in St. Louis. I would say as strong as, as anywhere in the nation and, and stronger than in many places. And I think that the sit-in movement is, is emblematic of that. And, you and they also- were successful, right? The, the downtown lunch counters by the, by the 50s were, were integrated. You know, the, the, there was no, 
Um, even even before the city passed a public accommodation law, the the protesters had succeeded in the downtown department stores. And you say they succeeded, even though um, the daily newspapers just seemed determined not to cover this. It it made me wonder, looking back as as you looked at these archives of of St. Louis newspapers, if journalism has more to be ashamed of here than necessarily to be proud of. <laughs> well, um, I, I think that the the the. St. Louis Globe Democrat, Democrat had a long and um, proud history as a voice for the far right in the United States of America. I mean, you placed Pat Buchanan <laughs> there writing editorials for them. Yeah, right. So, no, Pat Buchanan. Pat Buchanan's editorials, were, and I do think that that um, Buchanan sort of cut his intellectual teeth in St. Louis, amongst you know several other people on the right or, or far right. And so that's another part of the history that, that that's a part of the history that I had in some way known just from growing up in Missouri and, and hearing some of, you know, just hearing my, my parents talk about the John Birch Society or the, the Globe Democrat or Buchanan, you know, that I had some um, kind of knowledge of that that I had forgotten from my childhood. But it was really interesting to uncover the um, the importance of of St. Louis in the kind of history, intellectual history of racial nationalism that I think we've all become a little bit more um, interested in recently. You know, that leads me right to one section of the book I did want to ask you about. And you talk about how these reactionaries and even Nazis were fighting to keep black kids out of swimming pools and neighborhoods. But you write, not all the people in St. Louis or the county were like Phyllis Schlafly or John Stormer or Pat Buchanan. Far from it. Many whites in the St. Louis suburbs during those years probably grew up in the way I did, living two hours west. They believed in, quote, good schools, nice neighborhoods, and high property values, and disidentified, if not always openly or or still less courageously, with the overt racism of some of their neighbors. And that served them, as it did me, as an alibi for failing to connect the dots between their own privileged lives and the white supremacists out on parole in the perimeter of their towns. This was one of the only personal notes throughout this entire 500-page book. It made me wonder about you. When did you first begin to understand how much you'd benefited from all of this uh, privilege and, and white supremacy that you focus on in this book? Yeah, well, I appreciate you you point to that because, in a way, that's the the moral center of the book, and it is as much as I think people will read it and think that I'm trying to, you know, roll in from Harvard and scold everybody like some kind of abolitionist avenging angel. Really, um, the moral center of the book is my own perplexity in my childhood mm-hmm. at certain things that I saw and did not understand. And also at, at certain, you know, I, I, I hold myself responsible for not having understood for much of my life what the, the parameters of, of, of my imagination, my political and moral imagination were. And so, um, you know, so, so really it's an, it's an excavation of that. Um, schools in Columbia where I went were not um, segregated uh, except for on the inside. And mm. so, you know, there's a, the, the schools were, were tracked. And um, I think that I <laughs> benefited a lot along with a lot of um, white 
Midwesterners from um, the the sort of what what used to be the diversity focused politics of colleges and universities, private colleges and universities in the in the East Coast, which was the geographical diversity admission. Mm. Um, you get you know, to be my, the kid from Missouri. I was the kid from Missouri. Yes, I was um, in more ways than one. And, <laughs> and so um, you know, I, and and I think honestly, you know, just just to be be really forced we're honest about it. I, th- I think that there is, even within the academy today, there, I, I, as a white man, there's, there's a certain um, rhetorical stance that I can adopt without people getting too, too bent out of shape, right? Mm. So, so a lot of my rec- rhetoric is pretty hot, and I feel pretty hot about things. But there's a way that, that there, there's, there are certain people who can hear that coming from me in a way that they might not be able to hear that coming from somebody else. Hmm. And so, um, and I mean, you know, it's not like I don't get hate mail too, but I, but, <laughs> um, but I think that, that that's, a, you know, that's a, that's a contradiction. That's a perplexity of my, of my existence and, and um, you know. I, I am, after all, a, a white man who works at Harvard University, and so it would be really, really outrageous for me not to imagine that that's that the the framing parameters of my endeavor um, have to do with my own lucky life. Hmm. We got an email from a reader who um, has already read and, and finished your book, and he says it's excellent. He did have a question for you, though. Um, he, he noted that St. Louis City elected Kim Gardner, a, a black woman uh, prosecuting attorney, and the county defeated Bob McCullough and elected Wesley Bell. Both were elected with significant white support. Perhaps the ghost of Thomas Hart Benton is not as strong in current times, uh, Tom writes. He says the book is excellent, but it would be better if he had addressed that. Why end with Michael Brown, why not get into some of the political change that followed his death? You know, that, that's a terrific question. And a lot of it has to do, honestly, with, with a, a lot of it has to do with the timeline on which books are written. Mm-hmm. And so you have to imagine this as being a book that I finished um, really writing a year ago. Um, and that's not a sufficient answer because both Gardner and, and Bell were elected before that. I do try to finish um, with with a set of images of people in St. Louis who I think are doing amazing revolutionary um, work. Mm -hmm. And so I I think it's a fair question of, of why not to, why not to imagine a, um, a historical um, sea change. I think, you know, honestly that the moment I was, I was finishing the book was the moment that of better together. And then the, Mm. The stinger. Um, so there was still you know, some ugliness going on as you yeah, were wrapping well, this well, up. And and so I, and I was very conscious also of not trying to to capture that you know to say you, so to some sort of gesture of see I told you so because mm-hmm. I actually see um, in the city of St Louis a lot of really really visionary work that people are doing. I mm-hmm. I, I see people doing um, creating what I imagine to be sort of fragments of a better future. And so the epilogue is devoted um, to several of those those beautiful, um, smaller, but I think um, morally um, and practically really consequential projects in St. Louis. And that's actually the perfect note for us to end this conversation on. So Walter Johnson, I want to thank you so much for, for joining us today. 
No, I appreciate it, and I, and I, I loved your introduction. I'm, I'm grateful to you for having me on and for having read the book so closely. Well, thank you. I, I really did enjoy it, and I hope other listeners will follow me in giving it a read. They're going to learn a lot. And that book, again, is The Broken Heart of America, St. Louis, and the Violent History of the United States. You can get that at local bookstores. They're all doing curbside pickup. It's safe to get it. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.